Our scripture reading from this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 26 through 43, and can be found on page 884 of your pew Bibles. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also marked, mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed we, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. invite you to keep your Bible open to Luke 23, and let's pray together as we look at God's Word. Lord, your Word this morning brings us to the foot of the cross. We pray that your Spirit would give us eyes to see the cross as you would have us. And so, Lord, would you be with us? As we look into your word, as we listen to your voice, would you change our hearts? Would you reveal your love? And would it be sweet to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Gospel of Luke tells the short but very memorable story of a widow who, at the same time as the rich were placing their offerings into the the box in the synagogue, placed two small copper coins into the offering box worth, in today's value, maybe 90 cents or something like that. Imagine for a moment that you were there when that happened, that you saw it. Or even better, imagine that it happened right here today. What would you think when you saw that happening, what, what would your reaction be? 
elderly woman whose husband has long since passed walks up to that box in the back corner and drops a few quarters in it. Now, if it were a child, we would think that's pretty cute, right? A little child goes up, drops their little offering, their quarter in the box. We would think that's kind of heartwarming. Not if it's an elderly widow. I think many of us would think that that was quite sad. You know, for, for someone after living so much life, perhaps even after serving the Lord for so long, that, that all they have, that they, all they can afford to give is a few quarters. I think some of us would see something to be pitied in that moment. The more cynical among us might even laugh a little bit at the spectacle. You know, somebody dropping in the box 90 cents, how is that even going to help the church? I mean, you can't, you can't walk into Stop and Shop and buy a soda for 90 cents. What is the point of making that kind of offering? I mean, it's the kind of thing that, that again, the more cynical among us might, might find good fodder for the Sunday lunch gossip. You know, you wouldn't believe what I saw at church this morning. Or, or even today to kind of sneak the phone out and try and video it so you could put it on Instagram as kind of a public shaming later. Some of us might see the widow's offering as something to be mocked. But think about what Jesus would see, what he did see in that offering. Elderly widow living on a fixed income, however you might modernize it, placing all she has to live for that day in the box. What Jesus sees is not something to be pitied or something to be mocked, but an incredible act of love. Truly, I tell you, this poor woman, this poor widow, has put in more than all of the rich, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now come to another scene from Luke's gospel, just a couple chapters later. Imagine yourself standing outside of Jerusalem near an ugly hill, watching a ghastly and humiliating processional that you know is about to end with a public execution. Three criminals, central among them, the one who had claimed to be the king of the Jews. Story we just read. As you're standing there watching that processional, what would you see? How would you react? Would you see something to be pitied? Poor soul, led off to his death. Would you see something to be mocked? <laughs> Some savior gets himself killed. Or would you see the ultimate act of love? Those are the three reactions to the same event, to the same person that we see in our story before us. The crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion is the climax of the gospel narratives. Everything that we've looked at so far has been leading up to this moment. It is the crux of of the story. In fact, the word crux 
comes from the Latin word for cross. This is the centerpiece. This is what it's all about. In Luke's gospel, the story leading up to our passage moves there pretty quickly. I mean, even, even last week in John 13, Travis showed us that, that as Jesus gathered to celebrate the Passover with his disciples and, and demonstrate his humble love to them, the narrator started that story by saying, telling us that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The cross was hours away. And so the whole thing has been moving that direction. And we get to Luke's gospel here, and, and Jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples right after the story we saw last week. He's denied by another one. He's mocked by the temple guards. He's accused of rebellion against God before the Jewish council of blasphemy. He's accused of rebellion against Caesar before the Roman council, before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. He is eventually condemned to a rebel's death when Pilate capitulates to the will of the crowds and then sentenced to crucifixion, to death on a cross. Now, the cross is such a common fixture in the Christian faith today that, that we kind of forget how scandalous it really was. I mean, we, we decorate with it, right? We, we wear it around our necks because it's such a precious sign of our hope. But, but in the first century, that would be a bit like hanging a guillotine or an electric chair up behind the pulpit. It was an instrument of execution, and a cruel and shameful one at that. As John Stott explains, crucifixion is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were also slaves, foreigners, or other non-persons. So it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Uh, the Roman philosopher Cicero said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him is an abomination, to kill him is almost an act of murder, to crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And the stigma was no less outrageous for the Jews. Again, Stott explains that the Jews made no distinction between a tree and a cross, and so between a hanging and a crucifixion. They therefore automatically applied to the crucified criminals the terrible statement of the law that, quote, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse, Deuteronomy. And so as Jesus is led away to be crucified, the, the cross is not this precious symbol that it is for us. And so people saw different things when they beheld his cross. And, and so first, in verses 26 to 31, the crowds, particularly the women, saw Jesus' crucifixion as something to be pitied. Something to be pitied. Verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was 
coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So seeing Jesus, this one who would claim to be Israel's king, seeing him being paraded out of the city to his death, that was for some something to be pitied, something to be lamented, mourned over. It was a tragedy. It was a tragedy. And of course, that's true, right? I mean, this is the greatest tragedy in human history, that, that the creator would be murdered by his own creatures. That is a tragedy. But there's no indication that the crowd understood that dimension of it. For, for them, it was a tragedy on a human scale. It was just this poor, pitiable sight. A man who was so popular in his life, now so weak from being beaten that he can't carry his own cross, which probably referred to the cross being peace. The, the upright was usually left in the ground, and then the criminal was nailed to the cross piece or, or tied and then hoisted up. So, so he can't even carry his own cross. It's, all, it's this heartbreaking scene, even for criminals who were guilty. It was still a heartbreaking scene. I mean, you can think of the emotion in a courtroom when a life sentence is handed down. You know, the tears, the devastation. I mean, that is a tragic moment, even when the person is guilty and deserves that sentence. Anyone with compassion, their heart breaks at that reality. It's a sad thing to watch. And so, so the crowds, especially the women, they're lamenting. They're mourning. They're, they're pitying the crucifixion of Jesus. But look at what Jesus does in verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, which is an Old Testament way of referring to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They'll begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us, for for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? What a strange response to their expression of grief. Rather than receiving their lament, he redirects it. Essentially saying that if you're weeping over the death of a rebel against Caesar or over the curse of God falling on one of his people, then you ought to weep for yourselves because the day is coming and will soon be here when Jerusalem will face the exact same fate. God will judge it when he sends Rome upon it to destroy the temple and the city together. And you don't want to be here when that happens. Jesus himself lamented back in chapter 19 of Luke. He, he weeps over Jerusalem. He looks at the city and he weeps over it, saying, Would that you, even you, the city, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you 
and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, because you did not recognize the king when he came to you. So there's, there's a deep irony in the crowd's reaction of pity for Jesus. They see his crucifixion as something to be pitied when it was Jesus' pity for them that led him to this point. It was his pity for a broken and rebellious world that moved him to come down to earth and accomplish his Father's will. It was his pity for a broken people that moved him to love them at every encounter. It was his pity for a rebellious people that moved him to accept a false conviction as a rebel and then to accept his sentence to be crucified as a rebel so that he might bear in himself the human and divine penalty of rebellion and so rescue the rebels who put him there, the Jews and the Gentiles, you and me. It was his pity for the weeping crowd that moves him from the midst of his own pain and humiliation to warn them of the judgment to come and to reveal their need for a deliverer a deliverance that's available through the very act that they stand there pitying. So when we see Jesus' crucifixion through the lens of God's redemptive plan, in the context of God's redemptive rule, it's more than something to be pitied. It is the result of Jesus' pity for us. That's what's happening. But pity was not the only reaction to the cross. When we look at verses 32 to 38, we find that for others, Jesus' crucifixion was something to be mocked, something to be made fun of. It's interesting, you know, given the, the gruesome nature and excruciating pain of crucifixion. In fact, the, the word excruciating also comes from the word crucifixion. That's where we get, the, you know, given that unthinkable nature of the physical pain involved. It's remarkable that the actual event itself, the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, only receives a few words in a single verse. And when they came to that place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. That's it. That's all we're given. There they crucified him. What receives far more attention than the physical pain here is the humiliation and scorn of crucifixion, the mocking and the taunting that Jesus received. That's what the author emphasizes. So first, his company. He's, he's led away with two other criminals. He's numbered among the transgressors. He's paraded through the streets and to Golgotha as a common criminal, just like any other rebel. Second, his clothes. Criminals were crucified naked. Again, it's all about humiliation, shame, showing power over the condemned, showcasing their weakness and helplessness. 
And, and so the soldiers cast lots for his clothes. They play a dice game to see who gets to take them home, unwittingly fulfilling a prophecy from Psalm 22. But it's, it's shame. He's hanging there naked. Third, the ridicule. The rulers make fun of him. Verse 35, the, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And then the soldiers join in with the rulers. In verse 36, the soldiers mocked him, and they come up and offer him sour wine, which, which is a prank, right? They're playing a prank on a victim hanging on a cross. They're offering him sour wine as though it'll look like it's going to quench his thirst when it's nasty and will actually make him thirstier. So they're playing a prank on him, and then they just openly mock him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Even the criminals get in on the fun. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hang there railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And then fourth, the sign. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. That's meant to be ironic and insulting. You know how clothing companies will, will uh, produce Super Bowl champion t-shirts for both teams before the game so that they can put them on right away after the game? This would be like the winning team forcing their opponents to wear their Super Bowl champion t-shirts the next day, even though they lost. They're making fun of them. That's the sign. And so the crucifixion, some saw it as something to be mocked, to be made fun of. You, you thought you were a great king. You claimed all of this power, all this authority, but you lost. Kings don't get crucified. The Messiah doesn't lose. You say you're the chosen one of God and you can't even say you're, save yourself. So, so why should we trust you again? This isn't pitiful. This is pathetic. They mocked. And yet, notice in the midst of the volley of insults, in between the spit and the slurs, Jesus responds not by returning their insults or burning them with a sick comeback. He responds by asking his father to forgive them for they know not what they do. And what kind of love is that? That in the midst of their mocking, their cursing, their slander, Jesus' heart is burned not for revenge, but for the restoration of these people, for their forgiveness, for, for the canceling of their debt of sin against God, that they might be justified, reconciled, and at peace with the God whose very kingdom they are spitting on and rejecting. Jesus praise for their forgiveness, their forgiveness, for they know not what they do. Their mockery betrays their ignorance, ignorance of Jesus' true identity. He really is the king that they're making fun of him for claiming to be. He really is that king. They, they don't get that. 
the eternal Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. Their mockery betrays their ignorance of Jesus' identity. It betrays their ignorance of their own guilt. I mean, here they are crucifying an accused rebel when in fact they're the ones guilty of rebellion, of disobedience against God, of sin. Both the Jews who, with their sham trial and, and the Romans with, with their sham trial, in fact, everyone who is guilty of sin is complicit in the cross. And that means everybody but Jesus. We all stand responsible for what happened on that day. Finally, their mockery betrays their ignorance of God's plan of redemption. They make fun of him for getting himself crucified, not realizing that his crucifixion is the very means by which he's able to offer forgiveness to them for all that they've done wrong. I mean, if you're the Son of God come down from the cross, no, it's because he's the Son of God that he cannot come down from the cross. It's not, not because the nails are too strong or he's too weak, but because his love binds him there. His loyalty to his Father and his love for rebels like you and me. And that brings us to the third, the final reaction in verses 39 to 43. And the one person who sees the crucifixion as the ultimate act of love. Final scene begins with more mocking, the mocking we just looked at. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. And look carefully at what this criminal says and, and what he sees when he sees the crucifixion. He rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So think for a moment about the absolutely profound realization that this thief has hanging here next to Jesus. First, he recognizes his own guilt. It is not lost on the man that he's hanging on the same kind of cross as Jesus, but because of something he actually did. He deserves what he's getting, and he owns that, so he recognizes his own guilt. But second, he recognizes Jesus' innocence. This man has done nothing wrong. He doesn't actually deserve what he's getting. He's truly innocent. But then third, and this is the most profound part, he recognizes Jesus' identity. He doesn't just see Jesus as a man who, who's wrongly convicted and executed. He sees in his cross the kingdom of God, the king of the Jews, the Savior, and therefore his only hope. And so he puts his trust in the guy that just lost. He says to him, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is remarkable that from this point, seeing what everyone else is seeing and pitying and mocking, this guy sees, no, he's one and I want in. That is remarkable. One author explains that this criminal is the first to recognize that Jesus' death is not a contradiction to his messiahship, his role as savior. He's the first to recognize that Jesus' crucifixion is a precursor to his enthronement, that, that the crown and the throne are coming, not despite the cross, but because of it. By God's grace, this criminal sees through the pity, he sees through the mockery, and he sees his king, and he trusts him. He beholds the ultimate act of love. And Jesus recognizes his faith. From the midst of his own excruciating pain and deep humiliation, he rescues a rebel and promises him a place in his kingdom. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The crucifixion is Jesus' ultimate act of love. His willingness to lay down his life so that rebels like us might be redeemed. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Like the widow who, who gave everything she had as an act of love, Jesus gave everything, his very life. He paid the ultimate price his precious, sinless, perfect, obedient life given for us to accomplish his Father's will, to rescue a rebellious world, that is how he loves us. That is how he loves us. And, and I want nothing more than for us to see and receive that love of Christ, that ultimate love. And it's the thief hanging next to Jesus, who shows us how to receive that love, how we ought to see the cross. Again, first, to recognize our own guilt. Until you're convinced that you're a sinner, you won't see your need for a Savior. And the cross becomes something merely to be pitied or made fun of. To receive the love of Christ, we must recognize that before God's holiness, we deserve what he received as the due reward for our deeds. We need to recognize our own guilt. Second, we need to recognize his innocence as the only qualified Savior and his true identity as the Savior and King. That in his love, he lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us to bring us to God. We, we need to recognize that he is who he says he is. But receiving his love is, is more than just agreeing that he is who he says he is or, or, or agreeing that he can save. It's trusting him as Savior and King. 
turning from sin, believing in him, and putting the full weight of our hope for life and salvation in Christ alone, such that if we were to find out that he was a sham, our life would be a wash. We've, we've lost everything because we put it all on him. That kind of faith. As John Stott says, the cross undermines our self-righteousness. We can stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. And there we remain until the Lord Jesus speaks to our hearts his word of pardon and acceptance, and we, gripped by his love, and brimful of thanksgiving, go out into the world to live our lives in his service. That is receiving the ultimate love of Christ. I love how John Newton illustrates this in one of his hymns, probably a lesser known hymn, but absolutely breathtaking. Listen to this portrait, this story. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw that my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but... Now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon, too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit is now filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. is receiving the ultimate love of Christ. That's coming to grips with it. And I want that for us. I want that for you. I want that to be in our hearts and on our lips and shaping every part of our lives. Because there is no greater love available in heaven or on earth than the ultimate love of Christ. And if you don't know that, I pray that you would know that. And I would love to sit down and talk to you more 
about that. My email is on the website. You just drop me a note and we will do coffee. If you do know this love, I pray that you would rest in it and rejoice in it, but I pray that you would, most of all, believe it. Believe it in the deepest core of your being that when Jesus gives his pardon, it is for you. It's not just for you on your good days when you kept it all together. It's for you every single day. His blood is enough. That we would be gripped with his love and then sent out into the world to live our lives in his service. That is my prayer. And so let's pray. Jesus, would you grip us with your love? Lord, as we look on our lives, as we think through our days, as we look in the mirror, would we be honest? Would we have the grace to be honest about our sin and our brokenness, about all that disappoints us in life and all the ways that we disappoint others and most tragically you may we have the grace to be honest about that but may we have the grace to at the same time see the cross and see the ultimate act of love that jesus willingly gave for us and to see your word of pardon spoken over us god may we cling to christ in faith and may that Faith in the cross shape everything. May it shape our relationships, the way that we love each other, the way that we speak to each other and treat each other, the the quickness with which we're able to forgive. May it shape our lives before a watching world that we have a Savior who is unrivaled in love. And may we as we're gripped by that love, live our lives in such a way that you get the glory you deserve. Lord, we need you, and we praise you that in Jesus we have you. It's in his name we pray, amen.